The Last Word with Matt Cooper. To discuss the week trending, we're joined by Kieran Cunningham, the chief sports writer of the Irish Daily Star, and also by Ro McDermott, who, of course, is the Irish Times advice columnist and movies editor with Hot Press and, of course, reviews films for us on a regular basis on The Last Word as well. So he'll definitely be trending tonight. But I wonder how many people, Roe, are likely to be watching The Late Late Show because if you take out the specials, apparently the audience at the end of Ryan Tuberty's reign was down to about 300,000 people on a Friday night. How hopeful can RT be that the numbers are going to surge again under the stewardship of Patrick Healty? I expect a lot of people will be tuning in. I have to admit, I haven't been a regular watcher of the Late Late Show in a very long time. Um, and that's nothing against Ryan Tuberty. I just think it's a very tricky show. And it always has been because it's such a range of subject matters and styles of interviewers. You know, you have, you know, if you look at a, a program like Graham Norton, it has one very particular tone. It's meant to be funny. You're talking to celebrities. It's good crack. The Late Late Show, to present it, you have to go from a range of, you know, interviewing politicians, interviewing people about really tragic stories, talking to actors and musicians and then doing some fun competitions um so i think it's a really tricky show and i think patrick guilty i think a lot of people are excited to see what he brings to that very unique format and i think you know all the uproar around the late late show unfortunately in rte but i think people are excited to see some fresh blood in rte and see someone new take over this really uh, huge iconic show so i think people like me who might be haven't watched it in a long time might be tuning in out of curiosity and wishing patrick guilty well i think he has a lot of goodwill behind him and I think people will be riding on that and tuning in. But Ro, you gave a long list of all the things the Late Late Show has traditionally done. Could it be that in a shortly shorter format it should do fewer of those things? That it should concentrate perhaps more on end of week Friday entertainment? I think I think it depends on the interviewer, to be honest. And I think it depends on how you manage those different tones. And I absolutely believe it can be done. And I think a lot of people who are currently working on television and, and on the radio, and yourself included, Matt, also jump between a lot of different tones and a different stories. And I think that's what appeals to people about The Late Late Show a lot. Because you can tune in and you can have some fun. You can hear about something really tragic and really get into this empathetic zone. And then we'll have a break and we'll hear from a new musician. And so I think there's something of a community element to the show that you're really learning about a lot of Irish people's stories and things that matter to Ireland and it is it is varied and it is variety um, and I think Patrick Hilty I mean I really have high hopes that he'll be able to manage that, those tonal shifts very well Kieran Cunningham you were tweeting today about a running order from the Late Late Show I think of 40 years ago what was the quality of the guest like then? Yeah, it's very. It's just when I what the last time I was at home in Donegal, I was I was rooting around in the attic through old books, and I found this art. It's called the RTE book from 1989, and there's not much uh, in it that uh, would grab your interest now. Like it's very dated. But one thing they have is for the since the inception of the late late, they have a list of all the guests, which is really interesting historical artifact because. People often sentimentalise the past. And you do look, no, there are some uh, editions. Thank God, there's heavyweight guests there. But there are a lot when you go through them uh, over the years and they looked pretty dull. But that one from 40 years ago just jumped out on me as, you know, it was the same date. uh, Well, no, the 17th of September, more or less the same date. But you had Angelo Dundee. 
who, who was Muhammad Ali's trainer, and uh, with Mike Winters, the comedian, who actually wrote a book about Angelo Dundee. You had Scullion and Christy Moore providing music. You had Claire Rayner, the agony aunt and novelist. And you had Sebastian Coe, who was probably the most prominent athlete in the world at the time. And I think when people do uh, idealise the, the late, late past, they're thinking of episodes like that. You know, there are they pick out certain ones and they forget that it's hard to do that week and week. And I do agree with what uh, Ro was saying there. Uh, to me, I think the late, late has got a problem in, in the current world and that there's far more choice. And that the late, late's traditional format is very like the traditional format of a newspaper and that there was light and shade, there was a bit of sport, there was a bit of showbiz, there was a bit of entertainment, there was human interest, um, you know, there was a bit of celebrity, there was hard news. And I think that worked better when there was less choice. You know, that was a time, you know, when you either one channel, two channel or four channels, four or five channels. But now when there's so much choice, I think when people come to a segment they're not sure about, they're quicker to press the dial and it's harder to keep them for a programme of that length. Something I brought up with Joe and Elaine on Monday, but I would like to bring it up with you as well, Kieran. Given that you're from Donegal, which a lot of people in Donegal regard themselves as almost the forgotten county in the Republic of Ireland, but it's also part of Ulster. And he's been making a big thing about being a Nordy. So mm. he's not just the first Nordy to present the Late Late Show. You could say as well he's the first Culchy. So how <laughs> important do you think is that going to be in attracting the audiences? Uh, yeah, I think he has a likability factor, though, you know, that, that goes beyond any accent that he might have. And uh, he's also got that, that bit of light and shade. Like, like a lot of stuff Patrick Kilty has done has been light entertainment in the UK. But now, you know, he's shown his acting chops in Ballywalter. Uh, if you watched um, that excellent documentary series, Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland, like he lost his father in the Troubles and his contribution to that series w was outstanding. You know, he can do he can do the, the tough stuff very well. And also sport, he has an All-Ireland minor medal as a goalkeeper with uh, Down, he was a substitute goalkeeper, so he'd be very comfortable doing sport, which is something Ryan Tuberty really struggled with. And, pa uh, and Pat Kenny wouldn't have been his home with, at home that much with either. I think, and, and they do tend to do quite a lot of sport interviews these days, the late, late. OK, let's move on. We'll see. I'd imagine we will on Monday be talking to Joe Shane and Elaine Burke during our TV and streaming as to the public's reaction to the first edition of The Late Late Show under its new host, Patrick Healty. But let's turn to something which featured on some news programmes during the week. A rather odd one, which was a bit embarrassing, I think, for Virgin Media News in particular. The meteor in Port Marnacroix. This is one of my favourite stories of the year so far. I think this is about to join Theresa Mannion's Don't Make Unnecessary Journeys and the man sleeping on the ice outside of RTE as one of those iconic stories now because a hole appeared on a beach and the question was, was this a cosmic event? Was this RTE executives trying to tunnel their way out into escape or was it just lads having the crack? And unfortunately this um, astronomy enthusiast came across this hole and became very excited thinking this might be a cosmic event, this might have been a meteorite, there was a rock in the hole this might have come from outer space, this might put him on the map. I'm sure he was dreaming of his future career in NASA and knew News reports ran with it. And I have to admit, I'm slightly questioning the journalists who didn't do any follow-ups and just took his enthusiasm and put him on the news. And then it turned out a day later that it had just been lads on the beach doing what lads do and big, digging themselves a really big hole, which I just think is gas. 
And of course, Kieran Cunningham in the social media age, there just happened to be a video of them digging the hole. Yeah, indeed. A- uh, yeah, so the story, uh, you know, it's uh, it took it took a turn very quickly, and it went international very quickly. But uh, I have to say, I have a little bit of sympathy for Virgin Media because if you looked, if you hadn't seen that video, uh, I've walked a lot of beaches in, in Ireland over the years. I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> It was an amazing hole. Like it, it was so, uh, it was so symmetrical. Like it was so well. Like it, it, it didn't, it didn't look like a couple of lads with plastic spades that dug it. In fairness, I think. But that's you know, why they were filming. They were so proud of it. Yeah, yeah. And I have to, I, in fairness to Virgin Media, I think they handled it well. The aftermath in that they didn't ignore the story or pretend they'd never done it you know they did a follow-up and said the mystery has apparently been solved and basically we were duped and i think as well we have to remember that like in 1969 there was the Bodie meteorite which landed in northern ireland and that was just found by a farmer who noticed that a hole was there that hadn't been there before so curiosity and noticing things are qualities that should be embraced but i do think that that poor man is going to be in the pub for years to come with people going dave i have a hole in my jeans do you think it's a meteorite i just yeah i think it's gonna be a rough time for a while (laughs) Okay, let's talk, Kieran, about the Irishman arrested for breaking a statue outside the Brussels Stock Exchange. Just a day after it had been reopened to the public following a 90 million euro restoration, was he just a very unfortunate individual engaged in a bit of hijinks that went wrong? Or was this a form of cultural vandalism that he should never have gone near it in the first place? Yeah, well, I think I think you'll get people who argue both sides of that one, Matt. And uh, you know, initially when I saw the headline on this, I thought it must be. You know, there'd be a lot of statues have been attacked and, and sculptures over the last few years for political reasons. And be, but this uh, this does seem to have been somebody was messing, and uh, you know, the messing went a bit too far. And I can see why uh, people in Belgium are annoyed. Um, you know, like a lot of money was spent on it. Uh, the the the, the burst is uh, is it burst? You pronounce it. I'm, I'm always wearing my own pronunciation. No, but, you got um, that one right. I got that one right. Yeah, but the the you know it's a building they 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 put a lot of store in in Brussels and Belgium, and the restoration is estimated seventeen thousand six hundred. Not a huge amount in the context of ninety million that was spent on the restoration work, but at the same time. It's an irritant, and uh, the fact that he his escape, if you want to call it that, was to a nearby fast food restaurant <laughs> indicates to me that he didn't think he'd done that much wrong. Like he just thought, "I'll go for a burger now after jumping on the." Ro, Ro, would you have sympathy for this uh, jape gone wrong, or is that sort of cultural vandalism that should be decried? No, I think I, I think I would feel much more strongly about recent events like the tourists who defaced the Colosseum, for example, and there were tourists who uh, painted the word scouser on a 13th century wall in Thailand before. So those deliberate acts of vandalism. And of course, people shouldn't be crawling over statues while drunk. And of course, we need to take that into account. I do have sympathy for him. And maybe that is slightly misplaced. But I think if you are drunk and being silly, there are absolutely worse things you could do. And I think it went terribly wrong in that permanent and obviously uh, very costly damage was done but I do have some sympathy for him um, and I also think possibly I have to admit some of my sympathy comes from that this is outside the Brussels stock exchange and this was a 90 million euro restoration <laughs> and an incredibly expensive statue and maybe something about my liberal bleeding heart politics just believes that that is an excess of money to be spending when there are better causes but I think I think what people are really responding to is the past few years 
there have been so many incidents of tourists deliberately defacing um, places that they visit. And I think people are really responding to that. And I absolutely think tourists need to be more respectful um, when they're visiting places. But I have to admit, I think we can hold two truths in ourselves at once and go, that was not great behaviour. And I do feel sorry for him. Kieran Cunningham and Ro McDermott remained with us for the week trending. And Kieran, Stephen Termini became an extremely well-known figure when the New Yorker was assaulted on Talbot Street in Dublin in July, suffered very, very serious injuries and there was an outpouring of support for him and then also condemnation of the type of behaviour in Dublin inner city. But tell us about the rather strange and unexpected twist in that story we've had this week. Yeah, because this... um it wouldn't surprise me if a documentary is made about this story in the future because it's taken such such a couple a couple of strange turns um, since since that terrible attack on on the poor man. But uh, he, his sons came over. Obviously, uh, they came over from New York once uh, you know he was hospitalised and no word got back about how seriously he was hurt. And a GoFundMe page was set up to you know to help with his medical expenses and travel costs for the family and it raised over you know because a lot of Irish people were very shocked by what had happened it raised over 120,000 euro uh, but this week I think it was my colleague Paul Healy got into this first it, it, it emerged that uh, Stephen Termini uh, hasn't seen any of this money and he's saying that his sons uh, have held on to it and he's now set up his own uh, GoFundMe page he wants to stay living in Ireland he wants to buy a house in the west he says but I just checked it during the ad break he's only managed to raise $10 so far on his own page so uh, you know, the, I know the sons have a heavy metal band so maybe they needed a, some hardware they needed to, to turn the amp up to 11 or something <laughs> well they said apparently that they, um, the money was needed to cover medical costs and their flights and the rest of it but um once those costs are defrayed, surely there must be a chunk of change left out of 120,000 grand raw. Yeah, and now they have said that they can account for every penny and that there's still more than 100,000 euro available in the fund. Um, but and I think there seems to be some complicated family dynamics in that they seem to be somewhat estranged. And they've said, you know, he suffered a traumatic brain injury and he made some decisions that we thought were questionable and we didn't think was responsible to just hand over 100 grand in cash. Um, so I think there are questions over it. But that, again, seems like possibly them trying to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, there are men in their 20s who suddenly found themselves uh, with this huge amount of money but so I think that seems like a complicated family situation but I think the bigger question for me is about GoFundMe and the way that it's used because I think at its best GoFundMe is used towards disaster zones it's it's a way of taking collective action it's a form of well-wishing when people go through tragedy and I think there have been some glorious uses of the of the platform like after the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando GoFundMe raised I think eight million dollars for victims on their family Family. And the Times Up Legal Defence raised, I think, 25 million for victims of sexual assault and for their legal fees if they wanted to take action. So it can be used in really brilliant ways. But when it's used, first of all, as a replacement for universal health care in the States, which unfortunately it is used for a lot, I think that's really terrifying. And it's making um, it the responsibility of communities to take on responsibility that should be enshrined and should be collective rights. And then I think when people are using it for personal stories and personal tragedies, of course there's an element of people wanting to help but then the people who get rewarded are people who tell the most 
tragic stories that can be picked up by papers and media a lot of the time, which again just lends a cynical air to it. And I think the New York, uh, the New Yorker did a big investigation at GoFundMe and found there are people whose job it is to promote certain stories. And of course, if you are able to afford a marketing department to do that, there are just questions. And also there are huge questions of the amount of fraud that is committed on GoFundMe because it's very easy, for example, to set up an unauthorized campaign on behalf of someone else and then keep the money yourself. And I really hope that's not what's happening here. But I think we need to look at GoFundMe and just be careful about where you put your money. And I think it was such a lovely thing for Irish people to donate to this because I think we all were really shocked and saddened by that attack. Um, But I think the infrastructure needs certainly more investigation. Okay, Uh, apparently a trust and safety team forms part of GoFundMe's operations, aiming to ensure that any public donations are spent as intended or else they are refunded. Uh, Kieran, this is a great story from Trinity College. Tell us about the anti-smoking ambassadors and how they have found their job to be intimidating. Yeah, uh, I think the official title is Healthy Trinity Ambassadors, but one of the, the main requirements is to... Um, make sure that uh, smokers stick to three designated smoking areas within the campus. And, you know, it really jumped out at me now. I think Trinity now has around ten to 12,000 students. Like, it's gone up significantly the last 15 years. And to only have three uh, smoking areas for that amount of people when you factor in all the staff as well, I think the smoking areas mustn't, must be pretty unpleasant, I would think. But uh, they're, they're saying uh, that the, the, the ambassadors, uh, these students, these anti-smoking ambassadors have said they found it intimidated because they've approached lecturers if they find they're smoking where they shouldn't be or large groups of people smoking where they shouldn't be. And it's, it's been reported that the, uh, there's been a, huge, a significant uprise across the college grounds of people smoking in non-designated areas since the pandemic. And I, th- I think there's just a few changes in behaviour since the pandemic. Like, to me, I don't know, it might be my imagination, but I think littering seems to have got significantly worse since the pandemic. And I don't know if it's just something fl- uh, clicked in people's brains, you know, that they were just fed up with a lot of rules and regulations they'd have followed for quite a while, that they become a bit more reckless or, you know, since... Uh, the regulations were relaxed, but uh, there does see, it does seem to have led to behaviour changes. What about that, Ro? Do you think, has there been any sign of people becoming perhaps less tolerant of rules? I think so. And I think there was, you know, we have to look at really the collective trauma of COVID and thinking how isolated we were. And I think there was almost a reintegration or there isn't a reintegration process of remembering how to be in public space with each other because we were absent for so long and maybe just remembering that. And I know from a lot of people, a lot of people I know, we found it very hard to go back into professional wear after being in sweatpants for two years. And I think almost there is a kind of psychological uh, experience of that in entering public spaces and remembering this isn't your home and you really have to be considerate of other people um but i do think trinity have just made this situation very messy because they've said that smoking isn't banned on campus officially but it's discouraged but then it is up to students to discourage it and i can absolutely understand students being reluctant to chastise their peers or indeed their lecturers because they said a lot of staff are now smoking um and i'm very sensitive to cigarette smoke and i really think it's disgusting but i also 
don't think that should be a job that is put on students who are trying to navigate a lot of different problems and don't need their English lecturer giving them a dirty a dirty looking class because they told them to put out their cigarette half an hour earlier. I just don't think that's I think Trinity need to take a stance either way and say either there is no smoking on campus and this is going to be enforced by security or there is smoking and we're not going to put this responsibility onto students. Okay, finishers, Kieran, this year's Dublin City Marathon will get a medal which will have this quotation on it. There are no strangers here, only friends you haven't met yet. Who was it for who first coined that phrase? Well, it, it certainly wasn't WB Yeats, uh, according to Yeats scholars. Now, I think I have to take some of the blame for this uh, going a bit viral, or going viral, like, like Dermot Ferriter wrote about in the Irish Times yesterday, it's reached the New York Times as well. But I, I, I was sent an email last week from the Dublin Marathon organisers, uh, uh, you know, uh, promoting this, uh, you know, to tie in with 100 years since Yates won the Nobel Prize for Literature and that they were putting this quote on a medal. And I tweeted about it, and said, you know, that I, I really don't think Yates ever said this because in another life I did a bit of study on Yates and I learned a lot or I read a lot of biographies of him. And if you read about Yeats, one thing that jumps out is he wasn't a people person. Like famously, <laughs> I can't imagine him ever saying that. He wasn't a hail fellow well met chap. And famously, Matt, he went to a pub once in his life and he left within minutes in utter horror, vowing never to return. So I don't know how, like whoever decided this was Yeats didn't know much about Yeats. You know, it, it's... Uh, but it's embarrassing for the organisers and, you know, I presume that the medals have been, uh, are all ready, so it's hard to do a U-turn now, but it is, it is quite embarrassing. They'll be quite the collector's item role, won't they? Yeah. Uh, look, Matt, as Martin Luther King once said, just don't believe everything you read on the internet, you know? Um, <laughs> I just think it's such a schlocky hallmark quote. And I understand the sentiment of it is quite nice, but I just think attributing it to a Nobel Literature Prize winner um, for something that is so sentimental and uh, hallmarky. But it was making me think of other famous quotes that are commonly misattributed. And they're all of this kind of very cliched, be yourself. So there's one that's be yourself, everyone else has already taken, that is always attributed to Oscar Wilde. He never said it um there's um the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting different results and i have seen very well respected people attributing this to albert einstein and they never do um so i think these, these so who said it I think it appeared in a Narcotics Anonymous leaflet in 1980. Genuinely, it was. <laughs> and people are now saying it's Albert Einstein. So I think sometimes when people take a little nugget of truth and say, oh, that's amazing, they think someone incredible must have said it. And it's like, no, it can be fine. The amount of, now I'm showing my age with this one, but the amount of, I remember when Bebo started, the amount of women I saw saying, if you don't, if you don't like me at my worst, you can't have me at my best, so said Marilyn Monroe. No, she didn't. You're just using Marilyn Monroe as an excuse for your bad behaviour. Can we please stop? So, <laughs> thank you just very a little much bit of research, people. Ron McDermott and Kieran Cunningham, thank you both very much for being with us for the week trending. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4 30. Today-